This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, champs, and welcome to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Short Shifts podcast. I am your host, Ben Burnett, and joining me, as always, Louis E. Ezekiel, and the E is for forever standing Ilya Samsonov. Louis, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good, and I'm glad that E has moved one letter down on the alphabet uh, in terms of the sound that it makes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, another uh, another really bad start for our guy, Braden Holtby. They just keep trying to make that a thing. I wonder how long that'll last. Yeah, I would say that probably we'll see at least a 50-50 split here moving forward. I did retweet a graphic onto the Average Time on Ice Twitter today that showed that the Capitals have been protecting Samsonov in a more serious way. I would, I wonder what extent, to what extent Todd Reardon is keeping that in mind when he's choosing who to play. You know, if the, if the defense is backing up more to protect Ilya, maybe he thinks that starting Holtby keeps his team a little bit fresher, but there's no way to deny that they've been more successful with Samsonov this year. My contribution on a TOI Twitter on this topic today was simply that in a game in which Nick Benino owned gold and UC Saros turned the puck over to Ovechkin about three feet in front of the net, uh, they still couldn't manage to get a win. So uh, just pretty pretty nasty stuff there with a sub-800 game from, from Braden Holtby. Yeah, absolutely. It's rough. And I would... you. We already know that Samsonov is getting the Friday start. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see who gets that Sunday start because I think that the longer this goes, the narrative, obviously on fantasy hockey Twitter, is much snappier. You know, the the leash for Braden Holtby is much shorter among people who are not standing the Capitals after a recent Cup win, and so I think that we're starting to see more major networks looking at a goalie change as a more likely possibility the longer that the slump continues for Holtby. Yeah, no doubt. All right, well, Lewis, we have a lot to get to in terms of headlines, and of course we have our Patron 5 episode this week. The Patron 5 is a segment voted on entirely by the patrons of Keeping Carlson. You can become a patron of Keeping Carlson by going to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. It is $5 a month, and you get to hang out with Lewis, Brian, Elon, plus all of our friends all the time, every single day on the patron-only Facebook group. We chat hockey, we talk trades, we talk ads, and we also get the patrons to vote on five players who we will deep dive on our Thursday night episode. We will be getting to that later on. Additionally, on on Saturday, I do a live stream each morning talking start, sit, ad drop questions. We talk trades. We basically just get in a third episode of Short Shifts, minus, of course, our dear co-host, Lewis. Usually, he's unable to attend. 
Uh, but it's just a lot of fun, and we will be getting back to our regular scheduled programming this Saturday. Speaking of regularly scheduled programming, let's get into our headlines, though, Lewis, and we're going to start in San Jose. Yeah, uh, unfortunate stuff in San Jose. Just quickly, uh, I do hope I can join the Saturday stream sometime from the echoey gym where my son is doing taekwondo. Uh, it'd <laughs> be a lot of fun. So... In San Jose, Tomas Hurdle is done for the season with a torn ACL and MCL. Uh, Chris Tanev slid into his legs behind the net after he had only gotten about a minute on the ice. Uh, Hurdle tried to skate around during the TV timeout, but quickly headed back to the locker room. And the announcement uh, on Thursday morning was everybody's worst fear. Uh, that he did, in fact, tear those knee ligaments. Uh, it is looking really grim down the middle of the ice with Couture and Hurdle on the shelf. Your current top six is Kane, Goudreau, and Meyer, and Marlo Thornton LeBanc. And the bottom six is like Melker Carlson and a bunch of chumps. There's not really a whole lot to say analysis-wise. I feel like we talked about this previously when Couture was out. Couture's absence hurts everybody. Losing Hurdle now exacerbates a lot of those same problems. Is this an opportunity for anyone other than Goudreau dynasty owners to get better deployment? Maybe Meyer finds his way to that top line? How much trouble do we see the Sharks being in at this point? Well, we have already seen Meyer up on that top line, but I guess the hope would be the top Sorry, power play. Sorry, power unit. play, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that maybe we'll see... Timo Meyer get a shot on the top power play unit. The fear, though, is that, you know, the more strong players go down, the less this looks like a top power play unit. I would think that, you know, we could see 60, 65 points from Meyer if he's getting excellent deployment long term. I think my biggest fear here is that the torn ligaments, such a tough injury. And I, my fear is that it could affect his value into next year as he maybe starts slow or could even miss time uh, at the start of the season. As far as the rest of the Sharks go, I mean, at this point, from a from a regular NHL perspective, you got to be thinking that they're looking to throw it out at this point. They're not going to be making a huge jump from the bottom of the standings back into the playoffs, and they already lost that top. Uh, they already gave up that first-round pick to Ottawa in the Eric Carlson trade. They kind of seem to have caught whatever cursed Ottawa last year as far as having that bad luck trading away the first-round pick. Downgrade for everybody except for maybe Meyer, who probably gets a little bit of an uptick in value. I would say it's more of a stabilization for Meyer, though. It's not like I think he's going to be back up to that 75 point pace that we saw from him last year. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, a lot of people really pin their hopes on seeing a repeat from Meyer. Actually, that seems to be a theme. We're going to be talking about a few players who haven't quite, uh, matched what they were able to do in the previous season yeah just very unfortunate obviously for san jose uh a team that you know i think has been on the cusp for so long and it's unfortunate you know i i, I closed the last episode with this so i don't want to dwell on it too much but just um you know sad to see a team that has been very close and is looking like that window uh maybe has really shut for good yeah i think that you know they have enough of a core that you would you could see them revamping and going for it again next year but the the long-term contract on Vlasic and then you have Carlson on what I think we can you know 
favorably say is some worn down lower body parts. He's working on some uh, some wear and tear on those knees and hammies. So you know it's it's tough to and we're talking about Brent Burns deep into his thirties at this point or midway through. So it's tough to see them being the team being a dominant Cup contender heading into next year. But I don't see why they couldn't be at least like a, a bubble playoff competitive team if. You know, they get a few more breaks than they saw this year, especially down the middle. Let's move on to a a brighter headline here. We've seen the return of Brendan Gallagher for Montreal tonight. He returned from some pretty ambiguous sounding uh, migraine or concussion related issues. They just basically said that he wasn't feeling right after returning from a concussion a few weeks ago. He took some extra time off, came back today and looked great, scored a goal on an amazing pass from Thomas Tatar in the corner to out front. He's back with Tatar and Deneau. The interesting thing here is that we thought that maybe one of Suzuki, Armia, or Kovalchuk would get dropped off of the Domi line. Instead, we saw Suzuki and Armia drop down to a third line with Arturi Lekkonen, Domi sticking on line two with Ilya Kovalchuk and Nick Cousins. Kind of an interesting setup here. I, I did think that they would probably stick with an, with a top-loaded top six, but they seem to have gone with instead a two strong pieces on each of the top three line configuration. Uh, the, on the power play, we have Gallagher with Suzuki, Tatar, Petrie, and Deneau appearing as the second unit, while Kovi, Armia, Domi, Cousins, and Weber were on the top unit. Do we have any read on what these new-look lines could mean for the Habs? Well, I'm wondering sort of how long the setup will last. You know, we didn't see any power play goals, and I don't love that power play setup. It seems odd to have Cousins there when you could get Gallagher up on that top unit potentially, or, or you know, uh, there seem like there's a number of better options potentially. So we'll see if that gets shaken up potentially in the aftermath of not scoring any power play goals. They did have a successful outing against the Sabres Thursday night. The Sabres, of course, are uh, running out Carter Hutton right now instead of the injured Linus Olmark. So that may have been a slightly easier matchup than it would have been typically. But certainly good to see the Montreal Canadiens getting back on track a little bit. Great to see Gallagher back. Uh, This will definitely be something worth monitoring, as I imagine these lines will undergo some changes, at least the power play units. Good to see that top even strength line get back together and produce a couple goals in this game. Yeah, I definitely think it's a plus for Tatar and Deneau. I'm honestly not certain that they're going to switch up the power play. They seem to have preferred to go with an evenly matched top two units over the course of the last couple months, at least. When you have Jeff Petrie as uh, as such a reliable power play option, you, you kind of have that luxury of having two equally powerful units. Obviously, the preference would be to overload a top unit for fantasy owners, but I'm not sure that the Montreal Canadiens see it as as an obvious slam dunk as you or I would. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I think I'm playing into my own biases here a little bit about how I think a power play should be run. And obviously, I am not coaching the Montreal Canadiens. (laughs) That is Claude Julien's job, and he is certainly more proficient than I am. So go for it, Claude. Do what you want to do. Sure. Let's hope that doing doing, uh, what he wants to do does involve each of us succeeding in fantasy. Uh, I will talk about one more outjury, although I'm not sure it's such good news. We have seen Jeff Skinner return from injury this week. The hope was, with Victor Olofsson out, that Skinner would step right into that line one power play one trigger man role. 
So far, no. <laughs> He's playing with Marcus Johansson and Michael Froelich at even strength. He's on a second power play unit behind Rasmus Ristolainen and Mojo. On the year now, he's on pace for 38 points. That's fewer points than he had goals all of last year. Is it time to drop Jeff Skinner everywhere? You know, I had some complaints about this uh, that I was venting on Twitter uh, yesterday or a couple days ago. Just feeling like, why give Skinner so much fantastic deployment, set him up to get chemistry with Eichel, score 40-plus goals, and then sign him to this new long-term contract only to bury him. It does not make sense to it me. It makes no sense. It, like... <sighs> I'm, I'm really at a loss here. Like, yeah. why pay him that huge contract, have him take off a big chunk of your cap, and then set him up basically for failure this season? So he does not seem to have endeared himself to coach Ralph Kruger. So Ian Gooding from Dauber was chatting with us and basically saying this seems indicative of a gap in opinion between the GM and the coach uh, about a particular player. So, you know, the GM can sign whatever contracts he wants. Ultimately, Kruger is going to ice the lines that he wants to to ice until such a time as that not seeing eye to eye means that someone is getting changed. Um, In terms of the question of whether it's time to drop Jeff Skinner everywhere, I think if you are in a position where you can kind of afford to hold on to him for a while, and this is something that Brian was suggesting in Facebook, maybe try and hold on to him. But if you need points now, if you are in a position where you know having a streaming line or picking up an interesting up-and-comer is going to be uh, of immediate use to you, I think it's time to kick Jeff Skinner to the curb in much the same way that Kruger seems to have done. I mean, I would stress the part that Brian said about if you can hold, and I think it like in the strongest terms, like this isn't a, oh, you're one game ahead and hopefully you can hold on and you'll probably make the playoffs or whatever. This is like if you're guaranteed to make it and you're not worried about anyone passing you and you have weeks before you have a reasonable threat to your fantasy season – then I think you can hold on. But like, if you're in any sort of a playoff race and you have line two, power play two, Jeff Skinner, who's not shooting at all and on pace for fewer than 40 points coming off a horrific, like not horrific, but coming off a long-term injury. I think you, I don't see how I could advocate to hold him at this point. He's just been so bad. And obviously with goal scorers, you see long-term slumps. Like it happens with Max Pacioretty every single year, except for this one, apparently. It happens to all of the best goal scorers. Patrick Laine last year is a good example. Patrick Laine last year is a great example. But then when you look at Jeff Skinner, the, the particularly scary thing about him is seeing how much the shots have really fallen off. Like we're looking at one shot, zero shots. Like it's, it's more ones than anything above two over his past 10 games. So I'm I'm kind of off the Jeff Skinner train unless you have, as I mentioned, enough of a cushion that you do not need to worry for weeks. At which point, yes, maybe we'll see the Sabres realize they have an issue here and they need to start to manufacture some scoring. You know, they, they just lost 3-1 to the Canadians. So Maybe they shake things up, and in that case, I guess I would hold on to see what happens over the next few days. But if you are dying to get rid of Jeff Skinner, I'm not going to tell you to hold on. Yeah, this is uh, this is what Brian and Elon called the part where that you uh, we give permission 
You have permission to drop Jeff Skinner, I think. Exactly. Fine. You will you will be all right. And if the person that you pick up doesn't pan out, there's probably more better options out there too. All right. So jumping into our patron five segment here. We'll start here at number five. Our question is, how bad is Phil Kessel and will he go undrafted next year? So doing a gallery walk through Phil Kessel's natural stat trick page is quite interesting. Here is a list of even strength statistics in which Phil Kessel is at his worst rate in his career. You ready for this? There's a lot of them. Let's hear it. IPP, he's at 66.67%. Shooting percentage, 4.94%. Goals for percentage, so the, the share of goals that he's on the ice for that belong to his team, 35.29%. On ice shooting percentage, 5.23%. PDO, 966. Goals per 60, 0.35, half of his previous career worst. Assists per 60, down to 0.7, and shots per 60 at 7.09. It has been a total nightmare season for Kessel in Arizona, and I think GMs are right to wonder if this is the end of the line for this former fantasy stud. But the answer for me is no, I don't think he should go undrafted next year. In fact, he may represent some fantasy value in 2021 due to his current radioactivity. Now this year, I think it's fair to say it was probably a bust for most people who drafted him. But You know, if we're thinking, you know, obviously we don't think, or I don't think he's going to be his old Leafs penguin self in the desert, probably. That ship has sailed. But these numbers are unsustainably horrible. So unless he and Madison Bowie had like a Freaky Friday incident where they (laughs) switched minds and bodies, I think that he definitely has the chance to rebound next year. Uh, Even this season, there's a chance for aggression if your league is deep enough and if you want to take a chance on him. Uh, But it may be one of those kind of reverse Ochi type situations where he's just going to be unsustainably bad all season. Uh, He's been his old self on the power play. He might even be overperforming a little bit. Um, but if he can boost his even strength shooting percentage a few points and get some help from his teammates, you know, this is a guy who can still score 25 goals and get you 20 to 25 on the power play, which has value in plenty of leagues. Uh, I think it just really looks bad relative to his success in other seasons and what people sort of got used to from him. You know, this is a big adjustment. Uh, and you know, I think next year he does have the potential to bounce back, not as maybe the seventh or eighth round you know, pick or maybe even higher that he might have been this year, but, you know, somewhere in the bottom third of your draft when you're trying to uncover some, you know, potential diamonds in the rough, a Kessel bounce back could be valuable for you there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that Kessel could represent interesting value in drafts next year. I think the main question would be, what do we think he can do on the power play once Taylor Hall is likely gone. And you mentioned some unsustainability on the power play. He really hasn't been producing too much in the short term. It's been more of a October, November where he put up the lion's share of his power play points. Only four in his last 20 games since about, I think Taylor Hall came over about 18 games ago. So yeah, I think this is something where, you know, you shouldn't have ever expected Kessel to be who he was in Pittsburgh when he came over. It was just such a stark drop in in quality of teammates that there was no way he was going to be an 80 point player, but can he still be a 60, 65 point guy, especially when he's eating up such a strong share of the power play minutes? I think he could still be that guy, especially if we see some steps forward from other forwards in the desert. 
Yeah, absolutely. That is that is sort of where I'm at with him right now is that, you know, he could be a surprise 60, 65 next year that people maybe don't see coming because they're so way down on him this year relative to their expectations. Yeah, and it'll be like one of those things where everyone's like overrating him because he was such an MVP for where he was drafted. I can I can definitely see that. I just I'm with you that maybe I'm not expecting it this year just because everything continues to go wrong for him. Yeah, that's a it's a tough way to get your start, but uh hopefully better things on the horizon for Kessel down the line. And hey, they're only in the first period right now. Maybe he can get something going here. Oh yeah, there you go. All right, well, Lewis, I'm going to get into the first player that I deep dove on this show, and that is Denis Garyanov in Dallas. Yeah, I don't know if it's Denis or Dennis, but there's only one N, and I'm Canadian, so I'm going to go French-Canadian with it. Well, Garyanov's been a little hot lately. He scored a few goals over his last 10. He has been able to put up some shots above what his season averages, and he's also been able to get onto the top power play unit recently. Even still, he's only really on pace for 38 points this year. But people are starting to get a little hype because they're seeing recent production. He's proven he is an extremely strong NHLer in very limited minutes based on underlying numbers, even if his boxcar numbers don't pop off the page. If you look at those rate stats, he's putting up excellent 5-on-5 individual expected goals for per 60 numbers, goals for 60 numbers, and shot per, shots per 60 numbers. All of these are really strong indicators of future success. But what he needs to do to get that success is get more time on ice. So seeing that big bump in time on ice in his most recent game is heartening for sure. He had his second highest ice time all year, and he saw over 50% of the power play time. The question is whether or not that's a sign of things to come or if that's a mirage. So at even strength, he seems pretty entrenched on this second line with Joe Pavelski, a spot that like probably preseason you thought it, it sounded pretty good, but what we've learned in the interim is that this is 2020 Joe Pavelski is not the elite deployment that we would have hoped for. Being on that top power play unit, though, he is playing with Ben, Radulov, and Sagan, and that is the exact trio that you want to see time on ice with. I think while he's while that's happening, he is worth a stream in deeper leagues, especially when the Stars have a good schedule coming up. They do have a Monday-Tuesday back-to-back next week, so he could be an interesting late week into Tuesday stream if you're looking for some early week production. Um, it may blow up in your face, you know, like this is something that's purely deployment-based, and if Rick Bonas decides to fade him back down the lineup as the line blender in Dallas has proven they're not afraid to do, then he might not be worth holding on to. But for now, I'm definitely okay with streaming Garyanov in. I think there's upside for 50 to 55 point pace if things continue to break right this year. And this could be a player where if he gets the right deployment down the line, he becomes a, he becomes interesting in all leagues. Yeah, this will be something that is of personal interest to me since I'm aiming to try to pick him up tomorrow morning when the fab bids turn over. So uh, looking at that Monday-Tuesday start as as being quite appealing, so I'm hoping that he is able to produce in that spot. I think you're right. I love, obviously, getting time on ice with Ben Radulov and Sagan. I've been hard on Ben, but he's been making a nice comeback, Uh, so that's been good to see. And, you know, this this does put him in a position where he can have some success, at least in the short term. Yeah, I think he makes for an interesting potential streamer uh, and maybe the type of guy that you even hold on to for a week or two. 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's an upside play, but you know, if you get that upside, if that upside works out for you, it looks really good. Speaking of upside, the next question involves that as well. We're looking at Dylan Strom. What is his upside for this season and beyond? Uh, so Strom was really exciting in the latter stages of his first full season with 51 points in 58 games for the Hawks after he was traded uh, after just 6-20 with the Coyotes to start the season. Uh, he's had a bit of a sophomore slump by comparison here in 1920, but he is still pacing for just over 60 points. Uh, last year, Strom's chemistry with Debrinket helped propel his success, and the two have been frequent linemates this year. Um, but unfortunately, Debrinket's well-documented struggles, which have been discussed in several episodes of Keeping Carlson, ha- have also dragged Strom's scoring down with it, uh, along with some separation from Patrick Kane, which he was enjoying uh, from time to time. So... You know, he spent the most recent seven games injured. He is expected to return within the next game or two, but that return will be on a third line with the Brinkett and David Camp. There are some ominous signs in his numbers at even strength, including uh, a reduced shot rate compared to last year uh, and a too high on ice shooting percentage that's probably been boosted by exposure to Kane that's disappeared. Uh, if they aren't reunited and Debrinket doesn't improve, it is likely that we'll see him maybe lose some assists along the way. Looking long-term, I think Strom can definitely be a consistent 60-65 point guy as he continues to develop, uh, with upside for more with exposure to quality linemates, and as he continues to improve as a player, he has not yet hit his 200th NHL game, which uh, we talked about last episode is Dabber's breakout threshold. And, you know, if he gets exposure to those quality line mates, it's just not a given in Chicago for him. You know, he's, he's a guy who could be a 70-point player between Kane and Dabrinkit or a 50-55-point to 55 point guy on a lesser line. I think I, I think you're totally bang on with that. It's um, The interesting thing about Strom is how unvaluable he is in bangers categories. Like, he's just such a nothing. He kind of reminds me of Ryan Johansson in that way, where when things are going right, you want him because he's going to be giving you fantasy production on the offensive categories but when he's not on that top line or when he's slumping in the points category he's just such a wasted space on your roster so i think that 60 65 point window is definitely you know his general true talent right now and then yeah if, if he could get back up onto that Kane to Brinkett, if they if the hawks could reunite that Kane to Brinkett line he becomes tremendously interesting to me right away Yeah, that would be an immediate go out and grab him if he's around, if you can see that deployment return. Um, We'll have to see how that goes, obviously, as he's getting maybe eased back into the lineup. He's starting a little bit lower down, but, you know, there might be opportunity for moving up. Exactly. Lewis, I'm going to move on to our number two member of the Patron 5. This is a question about Sammy Blay. This comes from our patron Shane, who asks, Sammy Blay, bangers king, or just another guy? I have a follow-up question, and that is just, can he be both? As Shane mentioned in the Facebook group, Sammy Blay is on a Matt Martin-esque hit pace right now. Over a full season, he's looking at hitting nearly 290 hits, The rate stats look great as well in that category. He's 7th in the league in hits per 60 at 5-on-5. That's pretty darn good, surrounded by the Ryan Reeves and the Matt Martins of the world. 
The bad news for Blay is he really isn't doing much in any other statistical category. So he's on pace for 20 goals, which is great, but he's also shooting 19% at even strength, and he's not getting great deployment. Most of those goals were scored earlier on in the year when he was getting looks that he is no longer really getting on this Blues team. He's averaging just over one shot per game. I do not see him pacing for 20 over the rest of the year. I do think there's room to grow here, and if you look at Dauber's prospect ranking, they they think that he can be a 45-point upside guy. So what we could be looking at here in a best-case scenario is a is a Yoel Armia or a Patrick Hornquist-type long-term, where they may not always be valuable, but you can run hot with good deployment, and when they're hot, you know, like if he can get on a line long-term with Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron, for example, and put up 45 points while he's smashing every single hit that he can possibly do, and, you know, he gets on a line where he's getting fed the puck and he, he can up that shot rate, I think that that is like a possibility in a best-case scenario. I just don't see any of that really coming to fruition this year. I think in the short term, he's kind of a 25 to 30 30-point guy with a ton of hits. You stream him in when you can. He, he is Matt Martin right now to me. Yeah, I think he could be the guy that you stream in over the weekend if you're in a Cats league and you're just trying to take over hits, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, seizing the opportunity when it appears, and the Blues do seem to be the kind of team where their top six is four guys kind of set in stone in pairs and then wingers kind of shuffling through. So I do think there is some some potential to jump up into those spots. So obviously, if he's getting that better deployment, that makes him a more appealing streamer in that line. But yeah, I think you're looking at a guy whose utility is winning you a hits category. Or, you know, if you just need kind of some baseline points out of a slot in a points league, you know, he'll hit some people and whatever that's worth, it'll get it'll get tossed in there. But yeah, without without having the opportunity to really get out there and score like he was doing earlier in the year, that's pretty much the limit of what he's going to present for you, especially if that shot rate remains as low as it is. Yeah, the shot rate's low and then just the time on ice. Like you're seeing 10 or 11 or maybe 12 minutes on ice each game. He's just a very distinguished middle sixer and the upside does not there as long as this deployment holds. All right. Well, we are on to our final member of this week's Patron 5. You know, I hate to end on a downer note, but I'm just trying to give the people what they want. Uh, number one, Suban. That was the whole question that was posed. <laughs> and I think it really, uh, you know, on some players, it might be confusing. Like, what are we trying to talk about here? It is pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, looking through his numbers, I found two that I felt really defined the futility of Subban's season. Uh, first is his power play production. Subban has spent nearly two hours on the ice on the power play, uh, and he has two power play points to show for it prior to Thursday night's game. Uh, he's on pace for the lowest power play time on ice of his career, uh, but it kind of seems well-deserved given how unsuccessful the power play has been with him on the ice. And it's not even like the power play is just going around him. He's been in on two-thirds of the power play goals uh, that have been scored while he's out there. Uh, the exact same rate that he had last season in Nashville. The difference is there have only been three power play goals that have been scored while he's been on the ice in these two hours of power play time. So, I mean, I haven't compared that number to to others, but it strikes me as an astonishingly low number to have two full games of five on four uh, and only have three goals in the net there. 
The other is his even strength IPP, which is the worst of his career. He's only getting in on about a quarter of the goals scored where he's on the ice, and this is compounded by a poor on-ice shooting percentage that I'm not sure we can expect to rebound very much on this Devils team. Uh, so, you know, I've talked about a couple players who are really underperforming compared to you know, uh, preseason expectations and their previous career totals. But more than Kessel, I think Subban seems to have earned his poor season. Uh, and if I'm drafting next year, I'm drafting the former before the latter. I would rather have Kessel on my team than Subban uh, next year as I'm looking at potential rebounders later on in the draft. Yeah, I think that makes sense. When you're thinking about what players need to be successful in fantasy, it's kind of two things, right? They need talent and they need deployment. And obviously, both Subban and Kessel are talented players. I think that the demise of P.K. Subban as a player has been somewhat overrated just based on his underlying stats at a five at five on five. Like defensively, I don't think that he's washed. What the issue is with Subban, though, is that as soon as he slumped on the power play, they just cut him off in New Jersey and they do not seem to be interested in giving him another opportunity. So P.K. Subban's on-ice shooting percentage on the power play is more than poor. It is at 3%, which is like truly unimaginably low. To put it in context, his not very good on-ice shooting percentage at even strength is twice that. Sure. They're getting, they're getting worse when they're on the power play. Yes, the shooting has been worse. That's not all on PK. And so I do think that if we could see a commitment to him as a power play one defenseman, I think he could be much, much more relevant from a fantasy perspective. But even lately, Nazardin does not seem that interested in giving him a long leash on that top unit. The Devils have been running two defensemen on the power play, and so they started out their first power play this game in the first period, they had Subana with Vatanen and Hishier, Palmieri, and Hughes. And then the next power play, they switched things up. They pulled Subban off that unit and they added Severson instead of Subban. So that's really the main thing for me with Subban is just that he's not getting a chance to rebound at all, despite what's such an incredibly low on ice shooting percentage, a statistic that is much more, much less to do with his talent than it is to do with on-ice randomness. So I'm not as ready to say that Subban can't be valuable, but it is something where, you know, his value is currently at nothing. And until he gets that deployment, I think it stays that way. Yeah, I I think that's that's a good observation. And and maybe I am being too harsh on him, uh, given sort of the lack of success we're seeing from his teammates around him. We'll just have to kind of wait and see what the future holds here. I'm with you, Lewis, and I'm about to be without you, Lewis, because we are done for tonight's show. Thank you so much for the questions to our patrons and to everybody who would love to be a patron. Come and join me in time for this Saturday's Saturday morning stream. Until then, Lewis, I will see you later. All right. Well, we want to thank Fantrax, Frozen Tools on DauberHockey.com, and Natural Stat Trick for their help with researching this episode. Uh, To our patrons, again, thank you for your questions. Until we see you next week, play smart and keep your shifts short.